China, 211 BC. Over his long, successful life, death had failed to stick to Qin Shi Huang, and not for a lack of trying. The first emperor had dodged three separate assassination attempts. That's a lot. And these failed attempts at his life only reinforced Qin Shi Huang's belief that he had become emperor by divine appointment. The gods had practically made the guy bulletproof, which was pretty cool of them, seeing as guns hadn't been invented yet. By the time he'd reached adulthood, the emperor had expanded Chinese civilization, instituted widespread social reform, helped to create advanced systems of irrigation, and constructed a little piece of architecture you might know as the Great Wall of China. He had every right to feel accomplished, but perhaps all of that power and glory went to his head. It's a plague that has affected many of history's most notorious men, from Alexander the Great to Kanye West. It's often too easy to go from celebrated ruler to jackass, and usually it's only one unfortunate move that tips the scales. Qin Shi Huang's yo, I'ma let you finish moment came at the height of his power. The first emperor ascended the Great Wall, looked far out across the mist-covered steppes of China, and declared that his rule was even greater than that of the god-kings of creation. He then vowed that he would conquer death itself. Now, I think we've all taken enough ancient literature and mythology classes to know that this was not a smart move. The emperor had known for many years that death would always be his final opponent and he had taken great steps to achieve victory over the inevitable. This spark of desire may have been set off by a haunting encounter the emperor had experienced in the early days of his campaigns, when a so-called immortal had graced his court. The immortal in question was named An Chi Shun, and he claimed to be a wizard from a faraway island, and what a wonderful wizard he was. Because for three days, and three nights, Qin Shi Huang was captivated by the sorcerer's tales of a fabled paradisiacal mountain. On this mountain could be found an elixir of everlasting life, which could be procured from the peaches that grew from a tree as old as the world. Just a mere whiff of this celestial fruit was said to add a hundred years to the life of a mortal man. Upon hearing this tale, Qin Shi Huang immediately offered An Qi Shun as much jade and gold as he could carry back to his island in exchange for the elixir of immortal life. An Qi Shun politely refused, but the sorcerer did offer the emperor a shot at immortality. Kind of. An Qi Shun told the emperor that his legacy would be forever immortalized, if, and only if, the emperor ruled fairly and passed this compassion and righteousness down to his son. If the emperor's heir was properly reared to take the throne, then Qin Shi Huang would become immortal indeed, and China would remain forever prosperous. With that wisdom laid down, An Qi Shun dropped the mic, pulled a Gandalf, and vanished. Now, if you hadn't guessed it, 
the first emperor was not exactly content with a metaphorical notion of immortality. Qin Shi Huang began funding his court's most esteemed alchemists and men of renown, urging them to find the means of distilling elixir of everlasting life, mystical fruit or no. This obsession overtook the emperor, once a prudent and just ruler who had breathed life into a young nation. Now, this new Qin Shi Huang made violent decrees, burning books he deemed wasteful, dangerous, and against the ideals of his nation. So too did he burn their authors, and any scholar or alchemist who failed to produce the emperor's sought-after elixir. Now at a gray-haired 50 years of age, the emperor reflected on the arrogance of his youth and wondered if he maybe had made some mistakes. Reports from a little village in the east named Dong Jun spoke of a meteorite that had fallen to earth, and engraved on that meteorite was a message. The first emperor shall die. His empire will be divided. Unwilling to believe that this was a major hint from the gods that they were pissed, the emperor declared this a vandalism, an audacious hoax, and had a quarter of the village executed. These events kicked off a downward spiral for good Qin Shi, with the emperor building vast tunnels and complexes around his palace compound, all in the hopes of throwing off the death spirits set by the gods to claim the bounty that they had put on his head. Finally, alchemists in the Far East sent a message to the emperor, a claim that they had discovered the secret of eternal youth. Hunched over and weak, the emperor and his entourage set out for the East, leaving the emperor's son in the care of his chief bodyguard and eunuch, Zhao Gao. Accompanied by his prime minister, Li Su, the ailing emperor met with a collection of wizened alchemists who produced a strange medicine, a composition made from jade powder and a substance that formed solid in certain conditions, but was mostly found as a curious silver liquid. The emperor took the jade vessel in hand and stared down into his cup of eternity. He'd done it. He had thwarted the gods after all. He would be China's first and only emperor. Qin Shi Huang drank the elixir and waited for eternity to come. And in a way, it did. The emperor promptly fell ill and died because the substance he'd ingested wasn't the nectar of the divinities, but pure mercury. It is said that, on his deathbed, the emperor turned to his trusted advisors and with his very last breath, whispered, Ancient Chinese secret my- Okay, so he didn't say that, but he was still totally dead, which was a big shocker to everybody involved. Though the emperor's health had been in decline, there hadn't been any indication that he was going to kick it anytime soon. Worse, the emperor, being allergic to even the idea of his own mortality, left neither a last will and testament nor instructions on how the title of emperor should be passed on to his son, who was ill-prepared to take the throne. On a particularly hot summer's day, 
The Emperor's body was shipped away in secret by a shade-drawn carriage flanked by carts of rotting fish to disguise the smell of Qin Shi Huang's corpse. And if you've ever been down to a Chinatown street market in the middle of August, chances are you know exactly what that smells like. It ain't pretty. And it wasn't exactly a noble end to such an esteemed ruler. But Qin Shi Huang did get a pretty sweet burial arrangement. He was entombed in a vast complex modeled after heaven and guarded by a great army of terracotta soldiers. The emperor's burial complex would remain undisturbed for thousands of years until it was accidentally discovered by a farmer in the late 1970s. But to this day, Qin Shi Huang's actual sarcophagus remains unopened. But let's take it back 3,000 years or so. With the first emperor so, so dead, Minister Li Su and chief bodyguard Zhao Gao both found themselves in a frightening predicament. At the imperial court, the emperor's son, Fu Su, was best buds with one of the dynasty's most intense generals, who happened to hate both Zhao Gao and Li Su. The two royal attendants both feared he would kick them out of their cushy digs at the palace, or worse. On top of this, Li Su did not think the emperor's son a proper ruler in the first place. So, in secret, the two schemers devised a plan. Under the dark cover of night, Minister Li Su requested access to the office of the emperor. This wasn't a strange ask for someone of Li Su's rank, so he was admitted. There, in the light of the lantern, sat an artifact more priceless than the stone it was carved from. The heirloom seal of the realm, as it was known, carried the mandate of heaven itself, and any document stamped by it became the law of the land. The minister forged a letter, allegedly from the emperor on his deathbed, saying that his eldest son and most esteemed general must commit suicide at the time of his death. They literally killed two birds with one stone, the stone being jade. Now, this was an outrageous and terrible request, but it was also not questioned. This would not be the last time that the heirloom seal would directly influence the rise and fall of an empire. Well into the medieval age was the imperial seal complicit in shaping the course of Chinese history to an almost frightening degree. So then, how could such a feared and powerful artifact just suddenly disappear? And was it, perhaps, for the greater good? You can put a price on gold, but you can't put a price on jade. These words are almost as old as China itself, and they still carry tremendous weight. China's fascination and reverence for jade goes as far back as the cavemen. Crafted for all manner of objects, ceremonial and practical alike, jade has always been regarded as a stone of spiritual and regal significance. The origins of the heirloom seal start with a rare cut of jade 
known historically as the He Su Bi. The political philosopher and writer Han Fei was the first to document the discovery of this piece of jade. Han Fei also believed that the kings of the land up until that point in Chinese history had strayed from their divine ancestors. It was widely believed that the original founders of China were a triumvirate of kings sent from heaven to govern and guide their mortal progeny in a sort of golden age of mankind. Considering that mythology and history bled together in the ancient times and were quite often seen as one and the same, it's quite possible that these kings of renown weren't actually gods, but just really awesome dudes who were later deified and worshipped. Sometime in 280 BC, Han Fei recorded the legend of the He Su Bi, which goes a little something like this. While out tending to his fields, or whatever ancient Chinese peasants did back in the day, a farmer by the name of Bian He stumbled upon a piece of jade at the base of Mount Chu. To He, it was the most priceless piece of uncut jade that he had ever laid eyes on. It was fit for a king, in other words. So He ran with that and offered the stone up to the king of his province. But after the stone was examined by royal jewelers, it was declared a useless piece of ore. Now the one thing you didn't do back then was waste the king's time or try to play him for a fool. So the king punished He by having his left foot cut off, because I guess everyone was just kind of intense like that back then. I mean, all they had was rice patties and feudalism, you'd be bored too. When the king died, He, a man who stuck to his damn story, again offered the large stone to the king's son, now a ruler himself. But once again, the king had his jeweler examine the stone and drew the same conclusion as the first time around. Fortunately for He, he still had his right foot. Unfortunately for He, not so much after this. Onto the royal foot pile it went. Now foot loose and fancy free, He still managed to outlive the second king, but to be fair, Chinese leaders didn't exactly have a long shelf life back in the time of the Warring States. So the third son in the royal lineage took the throne. And at this point in time, Bian He looked down at his stumps and decided, you know what, maybe we need to work with a different approach here. So He went to the foot of Mount Chu, where he'd first uncovered the stone that had cost him his mobility, and held the jade towards the heavens. And at the foot of Mount Chu, Bian He wept for three days and three nights. When no more tears would fall, he wept blood instead because the ancient Chinese were pretty metal. The new king heard about this unusual performance art piece and sent his men to ask Bian He, Yo man, what the hell? Bian He answered, I do not weep for my feet. I weep that a precious jade is called but a mere stone, and an honest man is called a liar. The king heard this and thought, Wow, that's, that's deep talk right there. So the king had his royal jeweler cut open the stone, and like the world's most expensive kinder surprise, the largest, purest piece of rare jade was uncovered inside the rock. The king named the jade Hu's Stone, 
or the Ho Su Bi, in honor of what Bian Ho had done, and presumably because prosthetic surgery was another millennia away and this was the next best thing to giving the guy his feet back. The discovery of the Ho Su Bi took place in the middle of Chinese history known as the Warring States period. At this time, roughly 475 BC, the order upheld by the divine kings of yore had long collapsed, and China had devolved into seven separate kingdoms, all vying for legitimacy, with different families and rulers claiming their right to control of all the land. Wait, that sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? Now, we won't get too much into Chinese religion, which is very interesting and totally badass, but for context, just know that it varies from region to region, especially when it comes down to which god or goddess you worship. But there is a thread of commonality between these different systems of belief, especially in the close relationship between humanity and the divine. One of these shared beliefs is a rule known as the Mandate of Heaven, which, as you may have guessed from the title of this episode, plays a major role in the saga of the Heirloom Seal. The Mandate of Heaven was, essentially, the belief that the celestial realm chose a singular human representative on Earth, a leader who held divine right, was the arbiter of all of the land, and whose word was absolute. That said, this did not make this person infallible, and even they were not above the station of a god. If an emperor was acting a fool, then he best pray that no famines, floods, or catastrophic weather conditions were afoot. Natural disasters were generally regarded as a sign that the heavens were displeased with the emperor and it was time for him to go. And you better believe that would-be usurpers to the throne took advantage of these signs. In fact, the mere threat of revolt often helped curtail abuses of power by terrible emperors, and there were many. What's also interesting about the Mandate of Heaven is that it did not discriminate, unless you were a woman, of course. Because when it came down to leadership, the emperor did not necessarily have to be from a royal bloodline, though it certainly helped. Many emperors of China were actually average Joes who often came from humble beginnings and went on to either make a good case for the throne or kill hundreds of people to get there. In a line that would fit on a promotional poster for next season of Game of Thrones, there is an old Chinese saying about the Mandate of Heaven passing into the hands of another emperor. The winner becomes king, the loser becomes outlaw. In the Warring States period, there was no Iron Throne, but there sure as hell was a Mandate of Heaven. And if the Mandate had a physical form, it was the Ho Su Bi. For all intents and purposes, our tour among the Warring States will focus on just three key players in the saga of the Ho Su Bi and the Imperial Seal of the Realm. And these three kingdoms were as follows. The Lannisters. Just kidding. The Kingdom of Chu, which first discovered the stone. Located in the south, its central territory was around the Yangtze River. The rulers of Chu claimed to be the direct descendants of the Yellow Emperor, one of those widely worshipped god kings who is said to have brought civilization to China. 
The Kingdom of Zhao was the northernmost of these three states, so kind of like the Starks. This kingdom had once been the main political ruler of China, but had begun to lose its grip on its power. The Zhao were good at farming and making weapons out of bronze, and when you live in the Bronze Age, you can imagine that sort of thing is kind of important. Lastly, we have the Kingdom of Qin, and spoilers, you might want to root for them. The Qin were an efficient and respectful people, somewhat of the underdog in the situation, and were said to be descendants from the human grandson of the Yellow Emperor. None of their territory was particularly advantageous, but they had a lot of scholars and philosophers on their side. And though the pen being mightier than the sword is not an ancient Chinese saying, I'm sure the Qin would strongly agree with this adage. At this stage of the game, the Kingdom of Chu wasn't doing so well, and the Hosubi had been stolen during the tumult. It was sold to the king of the state of Zhao. Though the Hosubi did not yet empower the body of the mandate, seeing as everyone and their grandmother claimed to hold the title at the time, it was still widely regarded as one of the most precious cuts of jade in all the land. You wanted that stone if you wanted to be an emperor. The Qin kings were not as one-track-minded as their warring state counterparts, and they had devoted most of their reign at this point to the patronage and planning of infrastructure, agriculture, defensive fortifications, and social reform. Eventually, the king of the Qin died, leaving the realm in the care of his then 13-year-old son, who went by the name of Ying Zheng. This young emperor was a very smart cookie, and he had help from a brilliant and deadly minister by the name of Li Su. Li Su was basically your quintessential Disney villain, an advisor who enjoyed his status as the king's right hand, but would do anything to keep his power. But Li Su was also good at what he did, which was advising, and he and Ying Zheng drove the kingdom of Qin to victory. Around this time, Han Fei, that scholar I mentioned in the beginning of the story, had caught the attention of the Qin leader. Ying Zheng was kind of a Han Fei stan, and he really wanted the scholar to come over to his palace for some Confucianism and chill. Han Fei, who was not a Qin, presented the king with an interesting concept, not killing people of the other states just because they were different. Fei believed that all Chinese clans were entitled to their specific cultures and were all connected by divinity to the gods and therefore were as one people. And one people should be ruled by one emperor, which is probably the part that got Ying Zheng the most excited. In a soap opera twist, Han Fei, it turns out, was a former contemporary of the royal advisor Li Su. Now, Li Su did not like Han Fei back then, and he certainly didn't like Han Fei anymore now that he was starting to cozy up to the emperor. Li Su, being a treacherous snake, convinced the king that Fei was just a Han kingdom loyalist and not to be trusted. Ying Zheng was now caught in a bad bromance, and he reluctantly had Han Fei imprisoned while he sussed out where the scholar's allegiances truly lay. Meanwhile, Li Su decided to complete his villain origin story. Years before he would manipulate the Qin heir into killing himself, the devious minister convinced his rival 
that the king was probably going to execute him anyway, and that it was just easier to drink poison and die. So while Lisa was most likely breaking out into a rendition of poor unfortunate souls, Han Fei, disenfranchised that his words had fallen on deaf ears, committed suicide. But before Han Fei died, he had managed to convince King Ying Zheng that the relationships between the warring states needed to be repaired at all costs, and that heaven would see its descendants united under a single banner. In order to be truly successful, the king would need to solidify the mandate of heaven as a physical representation of his just and absolute rule. When the last state surrendered to Qin, Ying Zhang declared himself first emperor of a united China and took the regnal name of Qin Shi Huang. The emperor took the He Subi from the fallen Zhao kingdom and had it expertly crafted into an imperial seal with which the emperor would stamp all decrees and laws for a newly unified and uncertain nation. The stamp was inscribed with the declaration, having received the mandate from heaven, may the emperor lead a long and prosperous life. From this point on, the heirloom seal of the realm would become the single most powerful artifact in all of China. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of this story, after Emperor Qin Shi Huang died, Minister Li Su and Imperial Guard Captain Zhao Gao managed to kill off his heir and install the Emperor's eldest son, Qin Er Shi, on the throne. In actuality, Qin Er Shi was nothing more than a puppet emperor, and it was Zhao Gao who called the shots, the first of which was to declare himself Chancellor. And now that Zhao Gao was pulling the strings, there was only one person in all of China who knew the secret of how he'd gotten there his co-conspirator, Li Su. Zhao Gao decided that Li Su was too much of a liability, and in a move that would impress Cersei Lannister, told the Emperor that it was Li Su and Li Su alone who had taken the Imperial Seal and falsely signed his brother's death warrant. Emperor Qin Er Shi had Li Su tortured until he confessed to the crime, and then was executed by being cut in half. Don't feel too sorry for him though, remember, he was terrible. Naturally, people among the court became curious as to why Zhao Gao had suddenly gained so much influence on the entire nation of China. And naturally, Zhao Gao, being a bit evil himself, swiftly executed anybody who dared question this arrangement. It didn't take too long for the bodies of royal tenants to start stacking up, before Qin Shu's uncle, Zi Yin, tried in secret to convince the young emperor that he had been duped, and that Zhao Gao may have had something to do with his brother's death. Fearing that his arrangement might soon be compromised, Zhao Gao decided that the emperor needed to be taught a lesson on just who was in charge of China. One day, in front of the whole damn court, Chancellor Gao presented a deer to the second emperor and called it a horse. The emperor, confused as anybody else with half a brain and knowledge of the Chinese ecosystem, said, Is the chancellor perhaps mistaken, calling a deer a horse? The emperor asked his court to back him up on this. Some wisely chose to remain silent, knowing the full extent of Zhao Gao's wrath, as well as the extent of the emperor's naivety. 
Some among the ranks outright aligned themselves with Zhao Gao, which hammered home the point that the emperor was outranked. And as for those who agreed with the emperor, Zhao Gao had them round up and executed. He was not a particularly nice person. Gao was also not a very good chancellor and cost the fledgling dynasty much of its territory, which they had failed to retain in the face of nationwide rebellions. When Qin Shi decided to grow a pair and imprison the chancellor for treachery and incompetence, Zhao Gao pulled a Palpatine, surrounded the emperor with his men, and then forced Qin Shi to, you guessed it, commit suicide. When word of this reached the emperor's uncle, Ying knew that it was only a matter of time before Zhao Gao came for him, as he was in line to succeed the throne next. On the day of coronation, Ying told his attendants that he wasn't feeling too well, probably some bad sesame chicken, and he withdrew to his bedchamber. But Zhao Gao wanted to get on with the ceremony so he could get on with the assassinating. Impatient, Gao went to Ying's chamber to see what the holdup was. And as soon as Zhao Gao stepped into the room, Ying signaled for his personal bodyguard, who cordially relieved the chancellor of his entrails. Ying then took the heirloom seal and notarized an immediate decree. All of Zhao's co-conspirators were to be put to death. The vengeance of the Qin emperors was finally complete. Unfortunately, though the villains of this story had been put to death, it came far too late. The Qin dynasty had lost its power, and rebel forces soon took hold. Ying later surrendered the throne and the heirloom seal to Liu Bang, the leader of the first group of rebel forces to occupy the Qin capital. Liu Bang became the new emperor and ushered in the Han dynasty. The heirloom seal would remain in the hands of their emperors for several generations. It was 6 AD. The calendar was young, China was booming, and Wang Zhengjun was the it girl of the Han Dynasty. Zhengjun was a kind and clever woman, and she knew how to play the game. During her lifetime, she would see her husband, her son, her two step-grandsons, and her step-great-grandnephew rule as emperors. Most of Wang Zhengjun's life was spent corralling royals, writing the wrongdoings of court, and putting out possible insurrections. She was a busy woman, and highly respected. In 1 BC, the emperor at the time, I, who was both gay and fabulous, died without an heir, possibly due to that liking men thing. This freaked out the Han Dynasty, now straight out of emperors. But Zheng Jun, who is now known by the amazingly badass title, Grand Empress Dowager Wang, decided to show these children how to put a dynasty back in line. Like any good grandmother would, she picked her step-grandson, Emperor Peng, to sit on the throne. As the emperor was young and sickly, the empress chose her nephew, the general Wang Mong, to serve as regent. And guess who liked poisoning people? Wang Mong was ambitious in all the wrong ways. He also maintained a cult of personality, having crafted all sort of false prophecies declaring his greatness and then spreading them among the nobility. 
All the while, he had the Empress Dowager wrapped around his little finger. Wang Meng wanted the heirloom seal, and he wanted it bad. But the higher-ups were suspicious of Wang Meng, as they should be, because anybody who spoke out against him had the weird habit of ending up dead. Wang Meng's own son saw through his father's tyranny and conspired with Emperor Peng's maternal uncles to overthrow the regent. But Wang Meng wasn't an idiot. He found out and ordered his own son and the emperor's uncles put to death. Furthering his terribleness, Wang Meng piggybacked on this purge and forged a document from the Empress Dowager, convincing his own uncle to, you guessed it, commit suicide by drinking poison. Unfortunately, though the Empress Dowager was a smart woman, she was none the wiser, as Wang Meng was very clever about deflecting her attention towards other matters. In 5 AD, Wang Meng decided that Emperor Pang had outlived his use and had him poisoned, like you do. When the Empress Dowager found out, she was naturally furious of this audacious betrayal and for not having seen through Wang Meng's facade earlier. But it was too late. Wang Meng claimed the mandate of heaven for himself and announced the end to the rule of the Hans. He stormed the throne room and demanded the Empress Dowager hand over the heirloom seal, which she retained as eldest leader of the Han clan. Her family's legacy falling to pieces in front of her, and for being deceived by such a wicked man, the Empress Dowager decided on a bold move. If the rightful inheritors were not going to wield the seal anymore, then nobody would. In her anger, she took the imperial seal and slammed it down onto the floor, chipping the corner of the jade. Wang Meng might possess the seal, but it would be as fractured and flawed as his rule. The new emperor, nevertheless, took the broken seal and had a metallurgist repair the corner of the jade with gold. Now, whether or not the gods had a role in his downfall, the reign of Wang Meng did not last for very long. Tremendous floods, the likes of which China had never seen before, literally split the waters of the Yangtze River in two, sweeping away the land and robbing hundreds and hundreds of farmers of their livelihood. The will of the heavens was quite clear. Wang Meng was a pretender to the throne. Bandits and farmers alike, all ostracized by the emperor, joined forces with a fledgling rebellion. The resistance overtook the capital, marched into the palace, and slaughtered Wang Meng, whereby the heirloom seal was restored to the Hans, and it would stay with them for another hundred years. We skip ahead to 184 AD. The Han Dynasty, which had successfully ruled for generations, suddenly wasn't doing so great. The Emperor's attendants, known to history as the Ten Eunuchs, had their own thoughts on how to rule the country. Leave it to a bunch of men with too much ambition and no genitalia to find the time to stage a coup. Their plot was to kill their master and replace him with a more favorable relative, his younger, naive brother, Lu Shi a royal they could control, so they basically pulled the Chancellor Gao. In overthrowing the emperor, they inadvertently threw the last remnants of the Han Dynasty into disarray, leaving China without a centralized leadership. The usurped emperor panicked, calling in two of China's most feared badasses, the brutal warlord Yan Shao and the more tactical Dang Zhou. Together, the warlords rallied the troops and took back the palace, which they did with much bloodshed. 
With China in the control of a violent opportunist, something had to be done. Yan Chao put together an elite team of warriors, led by his right-hand man, Sun Jun. The armies eventually reached the capital, deposing Zhao and taking back the throne. There are a few historians who believe that this is where the tale of the Imperial Seal of China ends. Scholars claim that the seal was most likely lost during the sacking of the capital, and that the relic that came out of the blaze was a forgery created by later emperors to legitimize their rulership. This story has branching paths, and this is our first potential diversion. When General Sun Jian marched into the palace courtyard, one of the royal concubines approached him and told him that she had hidden an object of immense power among the wreckage, fearing it might fall into the wrong hands. At the bottom of a dry well, Sun Jun found something arguably more precious than the seat of Chinese rule. He found the heirloom seal. He knew its significance and decided to hand it over to Yan Shao. Generations later, the last of the Hans would hand over the seal in a mostly peaceful transfer of power to a new dynasty, the Jin's. You may notice that history in this epic often repeats itself. Around the time the Jin's rose to power, China had once again become a fractured land of many dynasties competing for legitimacy. In this chaos, the gods may have squabbled amongst themselves, not quite knowing who to choose as their divine representative on Earth. And at some point between 907 and 960 AD, the heirloom seal, if it wasn't a forgery or recreation, well, sort of slipped through the cracks in the space-time continuum. Nobody knows where it went. Not even the best Chinese scholars, who you should realize by now, were hardcore when it came to archiving historical events. So, most likely the seal vanished with one of the clans who held it. But who? And where is it now, if anywhere? Some believe that Li Tongke, the final Tang Emperor, was the last to own the heirloom seal. As a child, Tongke and his mother were captured in a raid by a rival demand. In traditional George R.R. R. Martin fashion, his mother was forced to become a concubine and Li Tongke was raised alongside his captured sons. Fortunately for Tongke, he showed great military prowess, and he soon rose through the ranks, gathering power and respect, and eventually became the general of the Tang forces. Li Tongke was supported, at first anyway, by his brother-in-law, Shi Jingtang. But this relationship evolved into more of a rivalry. Both were well-respected and successful generals, and both had a shot as rulers of the Tang court. Eventually, Tang Ke prevailed, while his brother-in-law, Shi, fell ill. Li Tang Ke's royal advisors were of the keep your enemies closer camp, and instructed Tang Ke to place Shi Jingtang under house arrest. But Tang Ke, seeing his brother-in-law in a weakened state, decided he would pose no threat and sent Shi back to his home territory. This act of compassion would later prove to be Tongke's undoing. At this time in history, the Tang Dynasty was fighting back the incursion of the Khitan people. The Khitan ruled over a region relative to northern China and southern Mongolia, and with the Chinese Empire in disarray, the Khitan saw an opportunity to expand their territory. Among them was Taizong, a golden boy among his people. In time, he would grow to lead the Khitan amongst the remnants of both the Jin and Tang dynasties. 
935 AD, the Khitan were raiding the countryside, compounding this a cocktail of natural disasters, earthquakes, floods, and droughts were assailing the realm. Famine spread, as did general unrest and conflict among villagers. I imagine that, to be a peasant or commoner at this time, it must have been like witnessing the end of the world. The populace began seeing these catastrophes as a sign from heaven that Tonko's days were numbered. He wasn't the most beloved emperor anyway. Tonko was a bit of a lush, and allegedly not a fun drunk either. And China was starting to get sick of its abusive stepfather. In these troubled times, the people began to view General Xi as a far better alternative to his ineffectual brother-in-law. You can imagine how much of an embarrassment this must have been for the emperor. What was once a case of mere bad blood turned into outright war. Tang Ko was deeply suspicious of Xi and feared he would rise up against him. The emperor's royal advisors suggested Tang Ko reach out to those troublesome Khitan and forge an alliance. Tang Ko feared he would lose too much and barbarians simply could not be trusted anyway. Tang Ko's rulership was basically just a series of terrible choices. Things came to a head when Xi Jingtang sent his wife to the capital to celebrate Tang Ko's birthday. He had hoped this gesture would show Tang Ko his goodwill. Mrs. Jingtang was apparently a cool girl, but after toasting to the emperor's health, she was like, mm, it's been cute, but later days. Tang Ko, already quite drunk at this point, was apparently very offended by Lady Xi Jingtang's abrupt goodbye. He made a scene, and Xi Jingtang's wife was mortified. When her husband found out, he was furious. Things basically went down like this. Dude, you're going to rebel, Tang Ko said. No, you're crazy, she said. Dude, you're totally gonna do it, Tang Ko said. So then she said, fine, I will. And he did. Things did not look so good for the paranoid Li Tang Ko, who had succumbed to alcoholism. He realized that he had lost his empire to a backstabbing brother-in-law and a barbaric foreigner. In time, combined forces of Tai Zong and Xi Jingtang stormed the capital. With no other way out, the mad emperor took his wife and children, ascended the highest tower, and set the palace on fire. The Tang Dynasty went down in flames, and perhaps the heirloom seal with it. When Shi Jiangtang entered the capital and came across the charred remains of his brother-in-law, he made sure the bones were respectfully buried. But among the wreckage, the heirloom seal of the realm was nowhere to be found. So where the hell is it now? This is exactly what historians and scholars have been wondering for roughly the last mm, 2,000 years or so. When the Ming Dynasty took China back from the Mongols in 1368, they did not find the imperial seal among the recovered artifacts. To compensate for the loss, the following emperors had several new seals fashioned instead. To this day, 25 different imperial seals in total remain in the custody of the Chinese state and are housed in the forbidden city, Beijing. Experts have examined all 25 seals and though some once appeared to be strong contenders for the heirloom seal of the realm, none have been confirmed. You would think there would be a dead giveaway though. If what is written in the dynastic records is true, the corner of the seal should be filled in with gold. That all said, there may actually be some hope for its recovery, but it's pretty slim. 
In 2012, a recently discovered Qing Dynasty seal, measuring at 1 inches in length, was auctioned off at Sotheby's for the small sum of 3.6 million British pounds. The news was a surprise to many, including China, who wasn't pleased to find out that one of their lost cultural artifacts had been pawned off to a Western billionaire. Sotheby's claimed innocence and said that the seal had been discovered in Paris in the 1970s by a European collector. But it was later found out that the seal had been looted by the French during the Opium Wars. Oops. Now, the dubious acquisitions of imperial artifacts is not always so black and white. And I promise in upcoming episodes, we will get into the very, very, very murky territory of auctioning off priceless art. Believe me, it's a lot. But back to China. The last dynasty of China during its struggling and waning days was known to legally sell off its art pieces to foreign buyers. Even before this, though, hundreds of Chinese artifacts were taken out of the country by enterprising colonists, sometimes legally, sometimes illegally. Is it possible, then, that, not being aware of Chinese history, some representative of a British trading company may have unknowingly smuggled away the seal? UNESCO estimates that there is over 10 million Chinese artifacts in private collections all over the world. Maybe the seal is in among them, known only to its collector, unwilling to disclose the possession for obvious reasons. The time of the dynasties and the emperors is long past, though their descendants are still alive. Not to sound like that guy, but I've actually had the privilege of dining with one of the Qing remnants. And no, unfortunately, she did not have the heirloom seal on her. But she made a mean mushroom stew. If the seal was somehow discovered today, then it would easily be one, if not the greatest recoveries in Asian art history. And woe be it to Sufis if they tried to auction that off. Wars have been fought over the seal back then, and there's no telling what might happen if it re-emerged now. But maybe the seal is just waiting, waiting for the gods to choose again. Maybe somewhere in a rural province of China, there's a rice farmer's cabinet and inside that cabinet lies a jade stamp that has been in the family for countless generations, primed to fall into the hands of a new leader. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. The amazing music at the start of the episode was composed by Devin. And a special thanks to Lilu for providing me pronunciation guidelines for this episode. I hope I didn't butcher one of your languages too badly. The music in this episode comes from several great musicians on YouTube, including Teresa Tan, Derek Feichter, hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Jess D did the Game of Thrones cover, and I'm pretty sure that's all her, so wow. Please subscribe to their YouTube channels, download their iTunes stuff, throw money at them, love them. You can connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. And if you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, or most importantly, corrections, please send me an email at losttreasurepod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net. That's blueberry without the E. Next week, let's take a vacation to Bermuda, where we'll find out about a lost treasure that was actually found, only to be lost again. The adventure continues. Continues.